Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, pull them out this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 as we uh, continue our series through the book of Galatians, which is a part of our series, Giants Eat Peas and Carrots. And what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be kickstarting a mini-series within the series that's within the series. Anyone ever seen that movie Inception before? Uh, this is the inception of Galatians. We're going to be, we've been going week by week, chapter by chapter, but we're going to hunker down in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and we're going to spend, you, you, you ready for it? Two weeks in Galatians chapter 5. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh, that's actually pretty quick, Pastor Matt. I know. I mean, we, we spent like four weeks in Acts chapter 12, right? I mean, like, we're used to going big, long studies, but... The Lord is, uh, has, has been speaking to Pastor Dave and I, uh, and, and we're really excited about this series through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And so we're going to be smacking through this thing pretty, pretty good uh, at, at a good pace. Uh, and we're going to be getting ready in the next couple weeks to dive into a special series uh, for Christmas. Uh, it's, the, it's the Advent season, and starting in December, we're going to start a new series uh, called He Is Come. And we're going to be spending four weeks looking at uh, the Advent season, and we're going to be getting ready for Christmas. But before any of that, we've got to finish Galatians. And uh, in order to finish Galatians, we've got to start part one of chapter five. Um, we really don't have a whole lot of time this morning for me to review and recap Galatians chapter 1 through chapter 4, uh, lest I preach another long sermon just recapping all that. And everyone said amen? Amen. amen. But let's just suffice it to say that Galatians chapter 1 through 4, Paul introduces this idea of the new life in Christ. You were once a Jew, you were once a Greek, but now in Christ there is a new life. And because of what Christ did on the cross, there is a new era. It is known as the church era, and we are a part of it, and it's all about Jesus. Amen. And Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, he says, hey, this is good. You know this, but there's some people who've crept in and who have told you, hey, you need to add this, you need to add this, you need to do that, you need to be a Jew, blue, like blah, 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 blah. And, and Paul's like, stop. We're not adding to the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And Paul is giving his defense of the gospel starting really in chapter 2, and he's going to run through it. And today we're picking up in chapter 5 where Paul is presenting a very strong case for the gospel, and that the gospel is, it is all about Jesus. Jesus Christ is our ultimate hope. But more on this in just a little bit. Um, what I want to do to start this message off is, we're going to talk briefly about some things we as the church. And when I say we as the church, I'm not talking about Hillside specifically. I'm talking about the church of Christ across the globe. Some things that we believe in. We believe in things like biblical inerrancy. We, we believe that this is the inspired word of God, that God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired the writers of old, some 40-plus authors over 1,600-plus years to write this book. How many of y'all believe that this is the word of God? Amen? Amen. But sometimes, sometimes this idea and belief of biblical inerrancy gets taken too far. You might be like, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Matt? Well, some people would believe that, like, God re-inspired Scripture in, 16, in the 1600s and that the King James is the only inspired word. And if you're using something else, they'll make jokes like the NIV is the nearly inspired version. 
My, my personal favorite one that I've heard is if you use the ESV, that's the evil Satan version. Like, I mean, people believe weird things about the inerrancy of Scripture. Sometimes people will believe that, like, it's a paranormal event that, like, the authors of the Scriptures, like, got, like, possessed and they wrote things and they didn't even know what they were writing. And then by the end of it, they woke up and they were like, now, what was that again? And we believe weird things sometimes. Other things. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Anyone ever heard any weird theologies about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? There's all sorts of things that we believe, but that can be taken too far. These beliefs are things known as doctrine. Everyone say doctrine. Now say it with some like authority like we're in Bible college. Doctrine. Right? And doctrine is the set of beliefs that we as the church hold. But here's the thing. Doctrines should be viewed through the lens of Scripture rather than us viewing Scripture through the lens of our doctrine. I'm going to state that again, and if you write down anything today, there's actually a lot of things you should write down. But uh, the first thing you should write down, doctrines should be viewed through the lens of script. Yes. Let me make sure I say this right. Doctrine should be viewed through the lens of Scripture, not Scripture through the lens of doctrine. Because sometimes we can approach the Bible and say, okay, let me make sure this works with my doctrine. When really we should be looking at our doctrine and say, does this work with Scripture? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at, uh, at, at an important doctrine in the church. And you might ask the question, well, Pastor Matt, why do you bring up doctrines and why do you bring up like things like inerrancy of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit and all sorts of other doctrines that the church believes? I, I could be bringing it up because Paul is dealing with Jews in Galatia who begin to view tradition over the text. They begin to view their doctrine as more important, their traditions as like superior to the written text of Scripture. And it was for this reason that these Jewish Christians and that these just Jews in Galatia and across the Roman Empire were refusing the gospel because they were viewing tradition and doctrine above the scriptures. But we're going to examine doctrine this morning and, and a specific doctrine uh, because I think Paul really hammers home on some important points here at the, uh, the beginning of Galatians chapter 5. And today we're going to look at a doctrine that you may have heard of before, and it is the doctrine of eternal security. Eternal security. I'm not talking about like your home security system. I'm not talking about McAfee security on your computer. I'm talking about eternal security. This is a doctrine that the church holds in many traditions and domination, uh, uh, de de denominations hold this as well. And here's the truth. I personally, I believe in eternal security. And you might be saying to yourself, well, Pastor Matt, does that mean you believe that once saved, always saved? And I would answer that question, well, no, I don't believe once saved, always saved. But I do believe in eternal security. I could get witty or say something catchy along the lines of, I believe that once you're truly saved, you are eternally saved. But that witty statement would need a whole lot of unpacking. Uh, but I'm going to say this for now. I know that I am eternally secure because I know Jesus Christ is my eternal hope and that he is secure. I know that I am eternally secure because I know Jesus is eternally secure. But we're going to jump to this 
and, and explain this and, 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 and really unpack this in just a few seconds. But first, we need to go to the text. Amen. This is what it says, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you're already there. If you don't, it's going to be on the screens. But this is what it says. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, and you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith through the working of love. We ran well. Who hindered you, or, or you ran well? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we thank you that your word cuts through the bone and the marrow to the soul and to the spirit, God, and reveals to us the motives and the intents of our heart. God, we know that your word brings freedom. We know that your word brings life. And God, this morning as we approach the scriptures, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. God, that we would hear from you. God, that we would leave this place different than when we came. God, that we would have assurance in, God, with the things that you have promised. And God, I pray that as we leave this place, we would have a greater desire to bring the gospel everywhere we go. God, I pray that these would not be my words, but God, you would speak through, and anything that it would be of me, God, may it fall on deaf ears. God, that your word would come through. So God, we thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Verses 3 and 4 of Galatians chapter 5 are really going to set the stage for what we're talking about this morning, where Paul says, I testify again to you that every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to justify by the law, and you have fallen from grace. Paul is very clear that it is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That it is all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. And if we believe, as Romans chapter 10 would tell us, if we believe it, we're saved. We're going to jump more on this in just a second. Christian tradition and the doctrine of eternal security is the belief that from the moment anyone becomes a Christian, they will be saved from hell and will not lose their salvation. This is a viewpoint that is very popular uh, in, in Calvinism, uh, which, which is a uh, branch and a doctrine and a theology within Christianity. Um, it's, it's very popular in Reformed theology uh, due to their doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. 
as well as many other conservative denominations hold the view of eternal security. We as a church, Hillside, we, we don't come from a Calvinist or Reformed background in our theology. Uh, we, we tend to come more from an Arminian uh, view. And you might be saying to yourself, Pastor Matt, Calvinism, Arminianism, what are we talking about this morning? Uh, just let it be known that John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, these were two great theologians in the time of the Reformation, uh, and they had two differing views on salvation. The beauty is they're both brothers in Christ. And whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, uh, we're all on the same team. Uh, but we as a church, we, we tend not to come from a Calvinist standpoint. We come from the Arminian tradition, uh, which holds to a free, will, uh, a free will view of salvation. And uh, with that, the, the, the tenet of eternal security uh, is, is maybe a little different for the Arminian. Uh, the view that believers are preserved from all external forces that might attempt to separate us from God is there. But Arminian view would hold that there is a free will to separate oneself from God. Although God will not change his mind about the believer's salvation, a believer can willingly leave their faith by either walking away or denouncing their faith or continually uh, in willful sin without repentance. Uh, from the Calvinist view, if a person showed signs of salvation but then no longer so shows signs of salvation, the, the, the assumption would be that person was probably never saved in the first place. It was either a false conversion where they were self-deceived or they, they were feigning conversion to maybe uh, get within the good graces of someone else. In the Armenian view, however, uh, someone who had shown signs of salvation but then does not currently could be in a state of being backslidden, where they have backslided and they are currently living in sin. They're, they're, they've walked away, but they still have faith. An Armenian could view that they have lost their salvation altogether uh, or that they have left their faith. And like I said, Armenians tend not to believe in this idea of eternal security. And here's the thing, I think both views have very strong biblical arguments, uh, and it's a debate that's lasted centuries. I mean, we're talking like 800 years at this point. Like, they've been going back and forth on this, and the church hasn't fully decided what it is. However, I think uh, both have some good points, and I, as well as we as the church, we come from an Arminian point. I, I, I come from the Arminian viewpoint, but I still hold to eternal security. And you might ask yourself, well, how can this be? Well, I think it should be stated very clearly uh, that you cannot lose your salvation. How many of you guys on your way to church this morning, you went to grab your wallet? Anyone grab their wallet, put it in their back pocket? How many of you have ever lost your wallet? And you're like, where did I put that? Now, I know I had it at one point, but I can't remember where I set it down. Here, here's a better one, keys. Anyone ever lose their keys before? I mean, there's like whole industries now on putting little things on your keys that can sync them with your phone. And you're like, now where did, oh, and then you like follow a little map on your phone to find your keys. Like, you know you had it, and then you lost it. You misplaced it. You can't do that with your salvation. You can't misplace your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. What do I mean by this? Uh, salvation is not keys or a wallet. It's something secure. And at this point, all the Calvinists would cheer. They'd be like, yeah, eternal security. But, it's the part where the Calvinists would be like, no, 
You can choose to walk away. You can choose to leave your faith by choosing to stop believing. The Old Testament is all about the story of Yahweh and either the believing or loyal Israelites or Yahweh and the unbelieving or disloyal Israelites. You see, in the Old Testament, we see Yahweh demands loyalty but will not force it. Yahweh demands loyalty but will not force it. He strives and he draws, but in the end, those who are loyal are those who are righteous and inherit paradise. Yahweh demands loyalty, but he will not force it. The law did not save. It just showed the Israelites how to be loyal to Yahweh. And the purpose for this was to set them apart amidst the other nations. Deuteronomy chapter 32 talks about how after Babel, the, the, the nations of the earth were uh, uh, like sent out amongst the sons of God. And there were gods that were disloyal to Yahweh, divine beings who were against God. And they were ruling over the nations, turning the nations against God. But God's inheritance, God's portion was Jacob. Israel was God's set-apart people. And he gave the law so that they could be loyal to him, and it would be what demarked them as different than all the other nations. But the law did not just have the purpose to set them apart, but it also had the purpose to point them to the ultimate Savior, and not just them, but to the world around them, to the ultimate Savior, the one deserving of true and only loyalty. Back to Galatians chapter 5. Paul tells the Galatian church that they believed in Christ and they were saved. Christ was the only thing that could save. But then Paul goes on to say this, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. We're going to read this again, this time in the ESV, the evil Satan version. It says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, and you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You're saved. You've put your faith in Jesus. Now you've taken back on the yoke of bondage that is the law. You have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Jesus. Paul is clear that if we keep our focus and our trust in Jesus, then we will be eternally secure. Now, this is in no way to say that we earn our salvation by believing, okay? We walk away from here thinking, Pastor Matt said, I have to earn my salvation through belief, then I messed up. Because that's not true. That would be Jesus plus my loyalty equals salvation. And you remember what we said at the beginning? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. God is the only sole sovereign Savior. And at the moment of salvation, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit takes up residence and dwells the believer, teaching us to say no to sin and leading us into the things that are right. The Holy Spirit doesn't force us, but the Holy Spirit guides us. 
And Paul also tells us that the Holy Spirit is the deposit of the hope that we have, the future that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul says this exact thing here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Jesus is the Savior, and if we put our faith in Jesus, we're saved. The Holy Spirit indwells us and draws us to, points us to righteousness, and is the hope of our future. You see, if we try and add anything to, you ready for this fun word, salvific? Everyone say salvific. I typed it in and it didn't get the red squiggly line under it, so I know it's a real word, right? See, if we try and add anything to our salvific process, we step out of loyalty and our salvation may not be secure. And why is this important? Why, why do I bring this up? Why am I hammering on this this morning? Well, some churches seek to add or overemphasize other lesser doctrines and make them a part of the salvation process. You see, some churches will, unless you said a specific special sinner's prayer, then you weren't truly saved. Some churches will say, well, you have to get baptized first, and then you can be saved. Some churches will say, not just baptism, but proper baptism in the name of Jesus only. And maybe you've heard these things. Maybe this is all new to you. Well, just let it be known. There are churches that teach there's additions to just belief. Some churches will say that not only do you have to say a sinner's prayer, but then you have to get baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then once you speak in tongues, then we know you're saved. Whoa. Some churches will go on to say, if you use anything other than the King James, you're not saved. I mean, sometimes we get weird. And we add things to the salvific process. But here's the reality. Believe in Jesus and you have eternal hope. The reality is if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your eternal hope is secure. Because Jesus is secure. Last time I checked, Jesus doesn't waver. So much so that the author of Hebrews, he talks, he's, the author of Hebrews, I mean, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus is our anchor. Aaron, you got a tattoo on your arm of that, don't you? Like Jesus is the anchor of our soul. And when we think about that, this isn't in my notes, but write this down. This is so beautiful and it paints the picture of Jesus being secure. We think of Jesus being the anchor of our soul as like we're a boat in the ocean being tossed by the waves, right? And like we don't know where we're going to end up because the waves of this world are so intense. We should drop anchor so that we know we're secure, right? That's what we all think of when we hear Jesus is the anchor of our soul. That same portion of scripture talks about how Jesus is our forerunner. And like we always think like, okay, Jesus ran the race before us. He's given us the example, right? In Greek naval stuff, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but there's actually a specific boat known as the forerunner. And when there were big harbors or bays that were hard to navigate, the harbor master would send the forerunner out to the boat as it was entering the bay. 
And what the boat would do is they would lower their anchor into the forerunner, and the forerunner would take the anchor to shore and hook the anchor up to a winch. And then the winch would start cranking the boat into the shore by the safest route, passing all of the rocks. So when the author of Hebrews says Jesus is our forerunner, Jesus is the anchor of our soul, Jesus is sealed behind the gate drawing us to heaven, the picture is he's secure, our anchor is secure, and he is drawing us to our eternal hope. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are eternally secure. Paul moves beyond this point and he gets pretty harsh in these next few words. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Again, I, I'm choosing to read this in the ESV for this point. I, I started off in the New King James. Uh, but what the ESV does is the ESV uh, is going to go more like word for word to the text. Uh, whereas like the New King James is going to take some concepts and go with its word for word, but it's going to take concepts and, 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 and put them into conceptual form. The ESV is going to be like, concepts, we're just going to throw them out the window. If you don't know culture, it's all good. We're just going to give you what the words say. Um, <laughs> and the New King James, in this portion of Scripture, is like, it's kind of nice, which makes us feel good when we read it. The ESV, and you're going to know what I'm getting to here in just a second. This is what Paul says. It gets harsh. You were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if you brothers uh, still teach circumcision, or, or if I brothers still in preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Okay, these verses sound identical to the New King James. This is where it gets a little different. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. I wish that those who are unsettling you would emasculate themselves. Now, the New King James just says, I wish they would cut themselves off. And, like, we can just think about that and, like, oh, like, separate them from the fellowship, right? Cut them off from the group. No. Paul is, like, not pulling punches. He says, we're having a conversation about circumcision, and they're saying you need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul says, I wish they had shaky hands when they had the knife. And they just ended it all right then and there. Like, this is how serious this is to Paul. You try and add something to salvation, you've walked outside of the grace of God. You might as well not be able to walk for a couple months. Because it's too painful. Paul doesn't pull punches when it comes to, like, important theology. Paul is very clear. Salvation is not a formula. It is believing loyalty. Now, some of you may remember the day that you gave your heart to Christ. Some of you may have written it down in a journal. Maybe you've written it down in your Bible. Like, you remember the day and the time. I don't remember the day and the time, but I remember being four years old, sitting behind this really gross, like now that I think about it, uh, baby blue with gray floral print love seat that my parents had at our house in southeast Portland. And I remember sitting on the floor behind it with my dad. And I remember it so vividly, my dad saying, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? It's one of my earliest memories. I'm like four years old. And I love my dad. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, because I wanted to be just like my dad. So, like, I remember that moment, and I believe at that moment the Holy Spirit indwelled me. And I believe from that moment I was saved. But I know that there were times in my teenage years where I faltered and where I called some things into question and where I wrestled with, am I believing this only because my parents believe this? And I couldn't give you a time, a date, or a season where, like, I knew that I knew that it was my choice, not my parents' choice. But I can tell you now today that I know I'm saved. I know I've been saved. And that I know I'm eternally secure because my faith is in Jesus. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't remember a specific time. And maybe that's caused some doubt. There's others who maybe fear that at some point they've abandoned their faith. When I was the college pastor here and in college ministry, I can't tell you if I had a dollar for every time someone came up to me and said, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I can never be saved again. Sadly, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I'd be pretty rich. Because like that thing, I mean like that, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that was a huge fear and is a huge fear for many people. And I want to give some biblical reassurance here. If you're worried that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, the fact that you worry proves that you didn't. Because you acknowledge that there is a God who loves and who cares for you. And you don't want to do him wrong. But maybe you're here and you're doubting whether you're saved. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I've abandoned. Here's the simple and I think it goes beyond simple. I think it's truly a beautiful truth. And it's this question I'm going to ask. Do you believe Jesus is enough to save you? Do you believe Jesus is enough to save you? And if your answer is yes, then you're secure. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter 10. I mean, the entire book of Romans, the entire book of Galatians, pretty much everything Paul wrote the New Testament, the gospel. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're saved. When you wonder or when you doubt, turn back to this. Do I believe Jesus is enough to save me? When you wonder or doubt, turn back. Jesus, you are enough. When you feel that maybe you've done so much wrong that you're not worthy of salvation, Remember, it's not about what you do anyways. It's about Jesus plus nothing. When the enemy wants to sneak in and lie to you and say you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, remember that the very sadness about that precludes you from this because you want to do right before God. Remember, Jesus plus nothing. The reality is the gospel is the good news that Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of salvation on our behalf. And we need only believe in him and in what he has done. And we shall be saved. Because Jesus is eternally secure, our salvation can be eternally secure. Believing loyalty. It's not 
thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now let me earn it by works. It's not, let me earn it by works and then put my faith in Jesus and maybe I did enough. It's not put my faith in Jesus and then go get circumcised. It's not put my faith in Jesus and then eat the right diet. It's not read the right Bible version. It's not say the right words at a sinner's prayer. No, it's believe in Jesus. That's enough. And the Holy Spirit who indwells you will lead you in all truth and all righteousness. Teach you to say no to sin. Yes, it's not by our works. It's by grace through faith. And yes, James says faith without works is dead. It's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother Sunday. But here's the reality. The works aren't earning your salvation. <coughs> the works flow out of your salvation. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus, you can know that you know if you put your faith in Jesus and you say, Jesus, you're enough. God, your plan for me God, I look at you and Israel and the holy, loyal, believing remnant that was loyal to Yahweh, they were saved. And I know that that is your nature and I can do that as well. I believe in you. This is how Paul begins Galatians 5 and this is how we're gonna end it this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm. When you doubt, remember Jesus is enough. When you falter, remember Jesus is enough. When you feel like you've done too much and it's separated you, remember that Paul says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Stand firm. And do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus plus nothing. Let's stand. One of the things we do at Hillside when we give an altar call. How many of you guys know altar calls aren't in the Bible? Because there's not a formula. But we do altar calls because there's something about public declaration, right? And if you've come to Hillside in the last probably eight to ten years, you have never once heard us at an altar call say, repeat after me in a sinner's prayer. It's not that we think sinner's prayers are bad. It's not that we think sinner's prayers are completely unnecessary. It's just the sinner's prayer is nowhere in Scripture either. It's just a tradition of man. And you know what? Great. But Paul, Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, he says, hey, we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And if we do this, if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. And so this morning, if you've heard all of this and you're encouraged and you're reaffirmed in your faith, maybe you came here this morning with doubts. I pray that you leave after this with some assurance. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus. And the question I ask you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, do you believe that Jesus is enough to save you? Because we could spend hours going over how Jesus is sufficient. But let me just tell you right now, 
that he is. He took it all for you. Maybe someone's watching this in five years from now on YouTube and you're wondering, is Jesus, can he save me? And the answer is yes. And the call this morning is to put your faith in Jesus and believe that I can't do it on my own and Jesus doesn't need my help. It's all about him. So this morning, with every eye open and with every head up, when was the last time you had that in church, right? We're going to declare, and we're not just saying fancy words, like the Bible tells us to avoid vain repetitions and like just saying words. No, no, no. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is enough, we're going to confess it with our mouth. And as a church, with every eye open and every head up, we're going to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you believe it, if you believe it, remember, believing loyalty, you are saved. And the beauty is, because Jesus is eternally secure, so are you. Believe, 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 believe. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say it together. Jesus Christ is Lord. God, we thank you so much, God, that you love us. God, that you know our fragility, you know our, our own failures and foibles, you know our weaknesses. And God, because of that, you said, I don't think they're going to be able to do this on their own. And God, it was never your plan for us to try and do it on our own. Because God, you love us. And God, you've provided a way for us. And that way is in and through your son, Jesus. God, you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we know death did not hold him and then he rose again conquering sin and death, and in so doing, giving us the opportunity to partake in everlasting life. So God, we acknowledge that you are enough. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we are stoked and we welcome you in the indwelling of us. God, help us say no to sin. Help us walk righteously and upright in this present age. God, when we doubt, when the enemy creeps in, God, may we, by your Holy Spirit, say no to those thoughts and remember. And God, may we believe that you are enough. God, in so doing, your Holy Spirit, who is residing in us, eagerly reminding us of the hope that we have through faith. God, help us in all that we do to be loyal to you. God, we worship you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's saints said, amen, amen, amen.